Hey, South Asian Stories listeners, it's Samir. So it's autumn, a time for harvest festivals and family reunions. And if you're planning on getting together with your family, you should protect yourself and them by getting an updated COVID vaccine. If you're 50 or older, you're at greater risk for hospitalization and death, especially if you have a chronic disease. So get an updated vaccine now. If you need more information, talk to a doctor and find updated COVID vaccines at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for the, by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. All right, I am so excited to bring to the show Aftab Puraval. Aftab is the 70th mayor of Cincinnati. He was raised in Southwest Ohio and is making history as Cincinnati's first Asian American mayor. As mayor, he's committed to serving Cincinnati's 52 neighborhoods. He has made equitable economic growth as a top priority for his administration, as well as comprehensive reform and improvement of public safety, affordable housing, and environmental action. In this conversation, we discuss a lot, including how Mayor Uftab took a leap of faith in pu- into public service after giving up a comfortable career, the behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to be mayor, and how Mayor Uftab dealt with COVID crises both personally and professionally. Talking to Mayor Uftab was such a privilege. He's all class. He's an amazing human being, and I was enamored by what he had to say. So without further ado... Please enjoy my conversation with Mayor Aftab Puraval. Mayor Aftab, thank you so much for joining South Asian Stories. We're so excited to have you this morning. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure um, to uh, to speak to speak. Excuse me to the broader South Asian community. Um, yeah. I'm really honored to be here. You know, and when we were we were when I found your profile and I did more research on you, like public servants and public service for South Asians, like it is something that is something I'm very passionate about. And I know a lot of people just don't know much about because, you know, growing up South Asian, like, you know, you see people who are interested in politics, but you don't see people that look like you in politics. So I really want to get into that. But I want to start at the beginning. Um you know, you are from the great city of Cincinnati. It sounds like you are, uh, you know, from the Ohio area. Can you talk about your childhood, what it was like and how South Asian your family was? Yeah, you know, my story really starts uh, with my parents' story. Um, uh, my parents are immigrants, uh, as are probably a lot of the folks listening to this podcast. So um, some of this story will be really accessible and relatable. But uh, uh, first and foremost, I'm the son of a refugee. My mom um, was born in Tibet, and she was forced to flee uh, her home country. So my my mom, and, who was a, a, just an infant at the time, and my grandparents picked up, made their way through the Himalayas, through Nepal, and into India, where she grew up in a uh, in a refugee camp called Bailakupe near Mysore in southern India. Um, against all odds, she got an education. She made it to college, where she met my father, who's from Punjab, India. Uh, they met in Delhi. Uh, they got married and they decided to come to the United States. So my, my dad, who was a little bit crazy, looked at a map of our great country and from sea to shining sea, Samir, from New York to California, this man literally could have gone anywhere and he chose Beaver Creek, Ohio. <laughs> I have no idea <laughs> what he was thinking. They they immigrated here in, in 1980, um, not knowing anyone, not having any money, um, and uh, and they made their way. Um you know, c- kind of serendipitously, 
uh, and and you'll it's hard to believe, but they moved into a house where the next door neighbor was a sick family. My father is sick, and despite Beaver Creek being as homogeneous as it sounds, um, there was a, a small but but very close knit sick community. We had a gudwara. Um, we celebrated Basaki. Um, you know, it was a it was a, a lovely community to be a part of. Yeah, and because it was so small, my parents um, were were kind of leaders in the community. So it was, you know, it was it was it was people I think would be surprised to to learn um, just how close knit the Dayton uh, sick community is. Um, Beaver Creek is a suburb of Dayton. Um, the, the Tibetan side of me though, you know, has really been, has really been a challenge to connect with culturally because I I used to joke, I've never met a Tibetan woman I wasn't related to. And you know, that's not far (laughs) off. I mean, um, there's probably like 15 Tibetans in Ohio. I'm, I'm probably exaggerating, but, but not, not too far off. Um, and so when you're not around the larger community, it's hard to feel like you're of the community. Sure. Um, sure. And in many ways, my child, this is a very long answer to your question, but I'll, I'll just end with this. My childhood was, um, was challenging from an identity perspective because I'm half Tibetan. I'm half Punjabi. I was born in a place like Beaver Creek, Ohio, which is 90% white. Yeah. And so am I Indian? So as a kid, I would often, often think kind of subconsciously, am I Indian? Am I Tibetan? Am I American? And of course, the answer is yes to all of those things. Right. But how I show up in a room in Beaver Creek, Ohio, um, you know, white folks can't differentiate Tibetan from Indian, much less Asian from South Asian. Right. And so, you know, my and, and then when you look at me, I'm six, three and I'm kind of a mix. I don't really look Indian. I don't really look Tibetan. And so that really caused me as a kid to to not necessarily have a strong sense of self or a strong sense of place yeah. because so much of my childhood felt displaced. That's um, it's really interesting for, for, for me to hear. Um, and a lot of people have shared that experience growing up where, especially when they're in the U S and many, many families are immigrants is balancing this. And you have three identities to balance Tibetan, you know, South Asian, Indian, American, as you got older, how did your identity evolve? Like, how did, how did you, what was your elevator speech to people? Like when people ask, like, who are you off the, like, what are, tell me about who you are. <laughs> yeah. It, um, because, because there are so few Tibetans and my, my family, you know, were immigrants. They had very little money, but they saved all year long. And we'd only took one vacation and it was to go to India in the summer, <laughs> like at the worst time of the year to be in India. Right. Um, and so I, despite being on the other side of the world, I did have a pretty good relationship. Not pretty good. I had a great relationship with my grandparents, but pretty good connection with them because um, of how distant we were. Um, but because there's just not a lot of Tibetans around and I was growing up in a sick community in Dayton, um, I, I didn't really identify as Tibetan. I mean, I would tell people that I'm ha- I was half Tibetan, but because I was so far removed from the culture and the community, it didn't really feel like that. Mm-hmm. And so I identified very strongly as an Indian American kind of all throughout my childhood. Um, and then when I got to Ohio State, I had this kind of 
paradigm shifting, earth shattering moment where I joined, you know, I joined, I was like, all right, I'm at Ohio State, this big campus. I'm going to meet a lot of Indian folks. I'm going to have all these Indian friends. So I joined the Indian student organization and, you know, I'm doing my thing. People are welcoming. Um, and I'm volunteering for an event and I, you know, I can't remember what happened. I dropped something and I, I cursed in Punjabi. And the person next to me was the president. They're like, oh, I didn't know you, you spoke Punjabi. Uh, and I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm half Punjabi. And she was like, oh, I had no idea. Um, I thought we th- all thought you were the Asian Student Association liaison. No way. To the Indian group. So I was so imagine like thinking that you look a certain way. And then the very people who you think you look like say, no, you, you don't look like me at all. I mean, it was right. like, it was the most mind blowing, mind bending experience. And that really kind of threw me into a bit of a tailspin, if I can be honest. Yeah. Um, and so from that point, it was, it was both somewhat traumatic, I guess that might be an overstatement, but it was also helpful to challenge me to really grapple with what what is your identity? How, you know, where, where do you fit in? Yeah. Um, and so since that point, I don't really have necessarily an elevator speech because the answer to the question, Indian, Tibetan, or American is, is yes, I'm all of those things at the same time. And, um, it has been a lifelong experience kind of being comfortable with that and empowering myself to define that not for other people, but for, for me. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Um, I also want to talk about, you know, you, that story of, of, you know, being in Ohio State is probably a seminal moment for you. Did you find yourself, I want to talk about from a career standpoint, career also divine South Asians a lot. Um, how did you decide to go from uh, where you were in Ohio State? How did you choose? Okay, here's what I want to do after college. Yeah, look, I mean, this is, you know, this is a stereotype and uh, I often play it for laughs in a self-deprecating way, but my parents wanted me to be a doctor. I mean, like, you know, that's, that's unfortunately was the case for me. And, and that's an experience I I think a lot of people my age uh, and my background have, but I was never, I was never good at math. I was never interested in science. Like it, that was just not, that was like foreign to me. I was always really interested in reading and writing and public speaking, debating. Um, and, and in many ways, my parents' lived experience influenced my career, despite them wanting to, for me to go into a medical field. Okay. My mom, as a, as a refugee, you know, kind of inherently, I understood the importance of being aware of what's going on with your government, because it can have tragic consequences. And then my, my parents were always working. I mean, they were just constantly working and they were, you know, so tired, incredible parents, but always working for my brother and I. And so quality time with my dad was really limited to sitting down and watching the evening news with Peter Jennings with him every night at six or six 30, whatever it was. And we wouldn't really talk, <laughs> right? We would just kind of sit next to each other and, um, and watch the news together. Yeah. Uh, and and that almost by osmosis got me interested in current events and politics and news. And those two kind of foundational experiences, I think, if I think back on it, really pushed me towards politics. I've been a nerd for a long time. So I was, you know, I was student body president, 
for student council in high school. Then I was student body president at Ohio State. But I never really, going back to the original thing you said in the introduction, I never really believed that these were just hobbies. These were interests. I never really believed that I could have a career in politics or public service because if you see it, you can believe it. And right. back then, I didn't see anybody who looked like me. Correct. Um, Correct. And I, I certainly didn't see any Tibetans. I mean, there you know there are South Asians elected, this, particularly in Congress. Yeah. But I did not see any Tibetans or even um, uh, even Asian East Asian folks. Uh, not a lot, anyway. Um, and it wasn't until President Obama in 2008 uh, came along. And of course, he's our first Black president. But I really identify with him because he's our first president with an ethnic name. Um, and our first multiracial president. And he really inspired me to believe that no matter what your name is or, or where you're from or what you look like, if you are committed to public service and improving the lives of the people around you, then, then, then you can pursue your dreams. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm part of his legacy. I, I, the only reason I decided to run in 2016 was because he showed me the way uh, and he gave me the courage to do it. Um, yeah, that's amazing. And I think Obama had an effect to a lot of, um, people of color, ethnic folks. Cause you know, when you see someone like that, who to your point has a very amazing background and be able to channel that and be where he was, was just inspiring to so many folks in a way that was like subconscious to be like, if he could do it, no matter what situation I'm, I can do it. So before you started on your mayoral campaign, um, what were you doing before that? Yeah. So right out of law school, I worked at a, a, a massive law firm, um, called White and Case in Washington, DC. Uh, uh, I was, um, in the antitrust litigation practice group. So I was defending multinational corporations from price fixing cartel criminal uh, allegations, you know, doing God's work really. Uh, and I did that for four years. I actually started the, my very first day, my first big boy job. I started the day Lehman Brothers went under September, 2008. So right on the precipice of no that. Way. That was a very stressful four years. I mean, very, yeah. very stressful. Yeah. Um, and then I moved back to Cincinnati um, where I uh, served as a special assistant U.S. attorney. I was a federal prosecutor. Then I was uh, at Procter & Gamble. P&G is kind of the biggest employer here in town in Cincinnati, the biggest um, consumer products company in the world. Uh, and I was the global brand attorney for Oil of Olay and CoverGirl, P&G skincare and beauty brands. Um, and then in 2016, I decided to run for office. You know, I, I didn't decide to run for, for Congress or city council or mayor. I decided to run for the Hamilton County Clerk of Courts, which is a position that we hire, we elect here in Ohio. Um, and I did so because of my background as a litigator and as a prosecutor, I, I found that our courts are just particularly inaccessible and inefficient. And that really undermines the rest yeah. of the justice that people can expect. And so back in 26, 2015, when I would tell people, you know, I want to, I want to run for, for office. I want to run for the clerk of courts. Democrats would tell me, you know, you are crazy. You're going to run for an office. No one cares about or has heard of against the two-term Republican incumbent who can be beaten, you know, in conservative Hamilton County, to do all that, you have to leave your job at PNG. By the way, you're a brown dude named Aftab. That is not a strong ballot name. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and don't do this. You're going to lose. But if you, if you do do it, change your name. 
You got to change your name to Adam or to Al um, in order to, you know, in order to connect better with with the people uh, who are supposed to vote for you. And of course, I didn't do that. And I ran as hard as I could. And uh, and we ended up winning. And by winning, we became the the first Democrat in 100 years to to hold the position. So I was elected to the clerk of courts in 2016. And I, I served that in that role until 2021 when I took over as mayor. Let me let me pause you there because I want to talk if you can tell us the story of when you found out you won. What was that feeling like? Was it a relief, gratifying? I told you so. Like what was it like in your head? You know, every polit- every candidate runs because they believe they can win. It, it running for office is incredibly hard. I, it, obviously, it's an, an in- intellectual challenge and emotionally it's very challenging. Sure. It's a physical grind, man. I mean, you are, just think about this, everywhere, particularly when you're unknown, everywhere you show up to is an opportunity to win or lose a vote. You are never going to see this person in front of you again. You're, ne- you're likely never going to see them. They probably won't see your TV ad or your digital ad or your mail piece because you just don't have enough money to, to blanket those, those mediums. And so this is it, Samir. This, this, these next 45 seconds is my opportunity to win or lose a vote. Mm-hmm. Imagine being having to be on and performing. Because let's be honest, most people are not that chipper all the time. <laughs> so there is an aspect of performance involved in this. It is physically incredibly demanding. I only say that to, to suggest that if you are going to go through all that, you have to believe that you can win. And so I did believe that I could win on election night in 2016, I did not think I was going to win. <laughs> so, so I was shocked, legitimately shocked. And, and I, I, I kind of talked about this early in my previous answer. The woman I was running against is basically like part of the Kennedy family of Republican politics in Hamilton County. No one <laughs> other than me, her, um, her brother-in-laws have been on the ballot since our race no one but me has defeated one of these family members. I'm the only one. They have one loss on the record, and it's it's this guy. Um, and so it was a profound upset. So I was shocked. The second feeling I had was, oh, shit, I have to be the clerk, of course, now. <laughs> I have to figure out what, what the hell I'm doing, right? So, you know, you you go through these campaigns saying, I'm the perfect person for the job. You know, yeah. this is a no-brainer. But then, you know, once you're in the job, it's like, oh, my gosh, like I have to deliver now. And the clerk of courts, while it may seem bureaucratic and small, like I'm the clerk is responsible for running the courthouse. It's not like a legislator where you can just show up and give a speech and take a vote. Like I'm providing a service every day and that has to work or I'm going to be held accountable. So I was like, oh, shit. And then the third feeling that I had was was really devastation. Um, I went to bed November 2016, uh, believing that Hillary Clinton was going to win. My wife woke me up in the middle of the night and said, and she was crying. I mean, and my wife is, she's a doctor. She's kind of seen it all. She's not an emotional person. Uh, and she was crying and, and said that Donald Trump had won. Um, and so it was, it was kind of a surreal experience for me because the same day that my uh, of the sunrise of my career political career was kind of the you know in some ways the sunset of our democracy um so it was it was uh it was also very 
challenging because so many people who were devastated by the presidential, this seems strange to say, but it's true, poured their hope into me uh, and my career because, um, because of our unexpected victory. Yeah, man, I can't imagine waking up the next day with all those feelings together. Did it add um, a sense of pressure to performing? Like it sounds like you've been successful in a lot of different endeavors, you know, ever since high school, did you have a different feeling to this? Be like, Hey, I'm at another level here where I have to do something for these people who elected me. Like, how did you approach that with all that backdrop happening at the same time? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the real pressure that I, that I feel is not necessarily um, anything related to letting people down Mm. who, who pour their hope into me or who have expectations for me, but it really has everything to do with uh, letting my parents down. Um, I just turned 40. And so I've been, I've been more self-reflective than I usually am. (laughs) Um, you know, at 40, you kind of take stock, you take a measure of, of your life. Um, and let me just first say, I've, I've just an extraordinary life. I, I love my job. I've got two very healthy kids and, and a wife who most of the time likes me. Um, but it's, you know, now that I'm 40 for the first time ever, I can, I can, I can, I'm aware of the clock ticking. I'm, I don't want to overstate this. I'm not, I'm 40. I'm still young and I'm not running out of time, but I'm aware of the clock in a way that I haven't been in the past. And, you know, I, I told you my, per, my parents' story, the, the courage and sacrifice that must have taken at the age of 25, 24, however, however old they were, is extraordinary. I mean, they, they, they picked up their entire lives and moved across the world to make a life without any sense of how that was going to go, without really any plan. And they just, they bet on themselves. And of course it was successful, but the sacrifice that it took, I, my mom lives an hour away from me. I can't imagine having to take a, transatlantic flight to go see her the the, the the amount of sacrifice they made for me and for my brother is is hard to quantify and so i'm really focused on making a life worth that sacrifice um and so that's that's the pressure that's the real pressure that i feel um, not on a daily basis, but when I, when I think about what pushes me to be so ambitious and to set such, you know, high achieving goals, it's really that, that almost responsibility to live up to my parents' sacrifice. Yeah. And it's, it's funny you say that because so many of my guests on the show have a similar meaning, right? When they talk about, um, people they look up to, people that, that uh, inspire them. The number one answer is the mom, mom and dad because of stories like this, because of stories like this, that you are like, I'm in this position of privilege compared to them, of at least my starting point. 
going anywhere above that is is a sense, a sense of responsibility, right? My sense of duty. So um, I want to talk about, did that sense of responsibility make you decide, I want to run for office for being mayor after, you know, doing your, your time as clerk? Like talk, talk about the genesis of that decision. You know, I... <laughs> I'm really a mayor by accident. <laughs> I wish I wish this was part of like some kind of broader plan. People hate it when politicians talk about having a plan, like a career plan. It, it is totally reasonable for everyone else to have a career plan, but for whatever reason, people just you know find it self-serving um, for someone to plan out their career in politics. Um, and that's you know while while that may be true, it's it's impossible to be in politics without some kind of a plan. You know, the other thing, this is a complete non sequitur. The other thing that really um, I find interesting is we are obsessed with the reluctant leader trope in literature and in fiction. Like, like people who lead us should not want to be the leader, but like George be, Washington. God. Yeah, right, right. Who should be like shoved forward um, uh, kind of against their will. And they're like, okay, fine. If no one else will do it, I will lead. That, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you want to be led by someone who doesn't want to lead? Like that's correct. Anyway, so that, that's a non sequitur. Um, my plan was to do a really great job as clerk of courts and then to run and get elected to Congress. Um, I was really kind of um, activated by Trump, particularly given my refugee back, my mom's refugee background, my parents' immigrant story. Um, you know, the, the Muslim band, I mean, on it, the list is long and in, indistinguished. Um, but I was really kind of activated by him and felt that responsibility and almost obligation to fight back for um, those marginalized communities. That, that led me to running in 2018. I was part of the, the kind of generation that stood up against Trump. Always be proud of that. Uh, I was unsuccessful. I lost by four points in a, a heavily gerrymandered district. And my plan, Samir, was to, to run for Congress again in 2022 in this current cycle. Um, mayor was not on my radar. There had been a lot of corruption in City Hall. Uh, four council members were indicted, three on corruption charges. Um, the FBI, in, for, for uh, federal indictments, the FBI was kind of crawling over all over City Hall. Even before the corruption, it, it was just kind of a... It was a bit of a train wreck, to be honest, just, you know, a lot of egos, a lot of just mm -hmm. not very effective government. And I kind of wanted nothing to do with it. But the the heir apparent to be mayor was indicted in December of 2020 on federal corruption charges. And that left a massive vacuum of leadership in the city. And the people who raised their hand to say, I want to be the mayor were just not great choices. And, um, and so no one, no one came to me and begged me. I'm not a reluctant leader, nothing like that. No one was like, you got to do this. But I kind of looked around and I was like, man, if, if someone else doesn't run, the city is going to be in, in, in some problems here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, uh, I changed my plans kind of on the fly, took a huge risk and, um, and jumped into the race. Um, you know, I, I, I've always been really passionate, as I mentioned earlier, about justice reform. I've always been very, very passionate about empowering and supporting marginalized communities. And 
And I loved the part I loved about my job as clerk of courts was that I was an executive. Like I had a real job. I was providing a real service every day. It wasn't just bloviating and, and spinning. And all of those things, in addition to the need, really attracted me to the job, being able to be on the ground, providing, you know, real services to real people to make their lives better. And, um, and you know, I, I, I mentioned risk. I've said risk a lot today, starting with my parents. I have, I have taken a lot of risks, leaving my, you know, very well-paid job in D.C., to coming for coming back home, leaving Procter and Gamble and, and, and running for office in the first place, and then jumping into this uncertain mayor's race. But it really comes that risk tolerance really goes back to my parents um, and their, you know, their their courage to to immigrate to this country. Hey, South Asian Stories listeners, it's Samir. So it's autumn, a time for harvest festivals and family reunions. And if you're planning on getting together with your family, you should protect yourself and them by getting an updated COVID vaccine. If you're 50 or older, you're at greater risk for hospitalization and death, especially if you have a chronic disease. So get an updated vaccine now. If you need more information, talk to a doctor and find updated COVID vaccines at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. There's so much I want to unpack there, but one of the things that first comes to mind is um, integrity, right? You talk about, you looked around and said, wow, there's a lot of these people here are are making not great decisions and not great choices. And, um, you know, and you saw the, the car in slate and said, hey, this is not good for the city. How did you show the people that you were talking to, the people that were voting for you, you said, hey, it's going to be different when I run, it's going to be different. You know, you're used to this type of person and this type of action, but I'm not going to be the same way. And how do they trust you with that decision? It's really hard because talk is cheap. Um, And when you're, when you're running, all you can do is, is talk about it. Um, I asked them to take a look at my record. Um, I I mentioned I was the first Democrat in a hundred years to be elected to the clerk of courts. And so that's a that's an easy applause line, particularly when you're in front of Democrats. But what it really means is that when I walked into that courthouse, no one wanted anything to do with me. Not my 200 employees, not the 24 judges who are all predominantly Republican. It was very, very difficult in the beginning because I was kind of the odd man out. And I had beaten a I had defeated a, a darling of the Republican Party. Um, but I had to work hard to kind of earn trust, share credit and move my agenda forward with a predominantly Republican courthouse. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, I, I, you know, I, I, I had already developed a genuine relationship with, um, with our black and Brown communities because of my kind of priority of justice reform. And it was more than, more than just talk. I had instituted policies that even the playing field Um, and probably most importantly, I was, I was not, I was someone who was well known of being in the community. Um, you know, not just kind of showing up during campaign time, but someone who's, who you see in the community kind of constantly. Um, and those were the building blocks to trust, but it wasn't until I was in office and I started governing in a way that really changed the culture here in city hall from one of transaction 
if I give you this vote, you give me, you know, X, Y, or Z to one of kind of collaboration and effectiveness. So much so that this past month, I've actually asked the city of Cincinnati uh, residents, voters, to amend the constitution of our city to actually reduce the mayor's power. Um, because right now, in my view, it's not, it's not currently balanced. Mm. So that, 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 you know, acknowledgement and voluntary, um, giving back of power, um, through actions rather than just words, I, I think is, is important for earning that trust as well. That's amazing. And the fact that you said that and were self-aware to say, Hey, I have this much power, you know, we should be here. Here's my thing to you. Like how many people actually do that when they're in the position of power, right? (laughs) you know, like, and so that's, that's amazing. Um, I also want to talk about COVID, right? Because you started your campaign and in the campaign through one of the toughest things we've seen in the past 100 years. Talk to me about COVID, how it affected the community for Cincinnati and how you personally, you know, took it from a, from a, like a personal standpoint, but also from your, your vantage point as a mayor. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, personal. I'll start with the personally. It was, it was so, so tough for us. So my, my wife is a, is a hospitalist. So she's an internal medicine doctor, but works in the hospital. So she treats folks who are admitted to the hospital. Um, so only very sick folks and very early on in the pandemic, um, my, my son is now, uh, is now two. So he would have been, you know, just a newborn at the time early on in the pandemic. Um, and she was on the front lines, um, treating COVID patients every day, right from the beginning to this day. And early on, if you remember, we didn't really know very much about the pandemic. We didn't know how it was transmitted. Remember we were wiping down services. So she would come home after working all day. Um, I have this vivid memory. She would go straight to the laundry room, take off her scrubs, put them in the wash. Then she would go straight to the bathroom, take a shower. Um, and then she would come down and say hi to our newborn. It was so scary because we didn't know if, you know, if we were putting our newborn at risk, we didn't know if we were putting ourselves at risk. We, 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 we we were in a nanny share and we lost the other family because they were worried about their kid being, um, exposed to what Whitney was bringing home. And that is just a microcosm of just how uncertain and how scary it was at the time for everybody, not just my family, but for everybody. Um, both Whitney and I and my wife were essential workers. So we never got the chance to work from home. The courthouse, you know, people have to be bonded out. It has to keep churning. So I was showing up for work. She was showing up for work. Um, but it's, our challenges is nothing compared to challenges of most people and specifically black people. Um, and with my mayor lens, uh, you know, we, we are still recovering from the pandemic, the implications we're, we're still dealing with. And that's very true for our black community. Um, our black community was, if you're black, you're, you know, you had a black owned business. So it was more likely to shutter. Um, uh, you're black. If you're black, your health uh, outcomes were, were much more negative. You had less access to the vaccine. Um, uh, we've been partnering with our African-American chamber and our urban league to fund programs to, to get back to where we were, but the African-American chamber lost two thirds of its membership during the pandemic here in Cincinnati. That's an extraordinary loss of wealth and opportunity. Um, 
And we started in January of 2021 was the day we got sworn in, which if you remember was the height of the Omicron surge. And so for the, for the first time ever, we got sworn in outside. Um, you know, I think that the next week we had to call in the National Guard, Ohio National Guard, to help us with hospital capacity because we were running out of beds and running out of staff. Um, and so we, we kind of stepped into the teeth of the surge. Now, thankfully, we had it was the infrastructure was kind of there for us because the previous mayor and council had built it during the height of the pandemic. But that surge was was no joke. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it 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 was a tough time. Then most recently, we we dealt with a a small monkeypox outbreak. Thankfully, it wasn't as bad as in some other places. I just met with um, the Surgeon General, Doctor Murthy, and he he feels very confident in our response so far um, uh, to monkeypox. But I think the the big lesson there's a lot of lessons, but the big lesson for me, at least internally focused, is we have just been devaluing and divesting from public health for years and years and years. And that was one of the reasons why so many of us were caught flat-footed. Um, so we're trying to fix that through some shared services with the county and the city to try and be more proactive as it relates to public health. Yeah. And I think this is the first time, you know, a lot of us in my lifetime gone through the pandemic, even my parents' lifetime. And you talk about the importance of public health and vaccine rollout. People realize that if the government is running and on cylinders and things are working. It can work for you at a personal level. You can get the vaccine through the Department of Health and Human Services or whoever your local um, vaccine rollout is. And, and, and at a scale that you're like, well, the government can do that. Like I felt the, the vaccine was the first time I felt that from a health standpoint when they rolled out the, um, you know, the, the pandemic checks at a large scale. I was like, whoa, the government can actually send things to my, my checking account. Like I didn't know they could do those kind of things. <laughs> so that's kind of the thing. It's like, we've been so um, brain, not brainwashed is the right word, but so confused that the government can do these things. If things are, have the right leadership and the right infrastructure. And um, I think this new generation of folks can be like, okay, if the right people are involved, like they can do some really cool things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's absolutely right. The, the, the generation coming up is is the most diverse, most educated, um, most civically minded generation uh, that we've ever had. And so I, I that is what, uh, something that gives me a lot of hope for the future. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about someone who, you know, or a lot of people listening sees their sees their mayor from a, afar. Can you give us a, a, a peek under the tent of what your life is like? Give us the highs and lows. Like, what is it like that someone would not know about if they're talking to their mayor or government official? Yeah, well, the, I mean, there, there, there's a lot of highs. Being mayor is, is great. It's so much fun. Um, you know, you're the moral voice of your city when a crisis or a success happens, the city looks to you to tell them how they should feel about it. Um, it's not your job to spin or to obfuscate. It's your job to step into the void and take hard positions on hard issues and, and lead. I mean, it really is the essence of leadership. It's such an extraordinary opportunity and it's so much fun, particularly when the Bengals are winning. Uh, my, my approval rating is tied completely to our sports team. So I'm always cheering hard for them. And you got to go to the Super Bowl, right? Yeah. Yeah. My, my joke before the season started 
was that the Bengals had only lost once in my administration. Sadly, that has changed, but uh, <laughs> but until the Super Bowl, that was true. Um, you know, the, so so those are generally the highs. I would say my favorite part about, about being mayor was a surprise to me. I didn't realize this was a responsibility of mine, but uh, the mayor marries people. Um, so I, I've had, you know, a bunch of random folks ask me to officiate their weddings, um, both in my office and, and at their venue. And I love love. I'm a big Big rom-com fan, so um, it's been a, a real honor to participate in, yeah. in their special day. You know, the challenging part, the hardest part about being mayor is um, is the violence, the gun violence that, that's on our streets that we've almost become numb to, um, and there's no easy answer to the violence. Um, you know, obviously, anytime there's an officer-involved shooting, you're immediately concerned about the officer. You're concerned about, you know, um, the the person who was shot and the context by which all of that happened. Because um, right now, for a whole host of reasons, that's a an incredibly charged um, and oftentimes tragic um, instance. Uh, you know, but but I think what people don't realize about being mayor is um, is how much of my job is tied to the weather. Uh, so if, if I look at the weather report, I'll kind of know what kind of day I'm going to have. So obviously in the winter you've got here in Ohio, you've got ice storms and snowstorms. So people are worried about snow removal. People get very passionate about snow removal. And then when you remove the snow, you're, you're creating, um, you're creating potholes, particularly with the change of weather from hot to cold. And um, if it's raining, you can't fill a pothole. Uh, it prohibits you from filling a pothole and there's a pothole season. So if the pothole season comes too early, then factories aren't making hot patches no, in time wow. to meet demand. So that's why you'll see like potholes persist, particularly if they show up early in the season. Uh, and then in the spring, when it rains, uh, you've got, you know, uh, flooding and uh, sewer backups. And here in Cincinnati, we're very hilly. So then you've got landslides that you have to worry about flooding, obviously. Um, so then you're thinking, oh, let's just wait till it gets warm. But in the, in, when the school's out and when it's hot outside, that's when gun violence goes up, which is obviously incredibly tragic. I'm told that there's a weekend in October where everything is perfect. So I'm looking forward, looking forward to that time. I know you hope the Bengals win that weekend too. Cause yes, you, that's you right. can take the weekend off. <laughs> They're on a one game winning streak. So let's keep that going. Uh, wow. So th- that is interesting because I didn't even think about, um, the ups and downs of your job based on the weather, right? Because most of us have well, a good amount of us have jobs indoors that you, uh, you know, you think about the weather, you just look at it. Oh, it's going to rain today. And that's it. But you're like, wow, my approval ratings can go up and down based on the, <laughs> the precipitation. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, you mentioned this at the beginning of uh, leadership and, um, Talk to me about your personal brand of leadership. And, and, and if you can share me an example of story of why you took this viewpoint of leadership and how you made it your own. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, absolutely. I am, I am fond of surrounding myself with smart people who disagree with me. I, I don't know if it's, if it's the, um, the litigator in me, but I, I, I tend to think that the, the best way to get to the right answer is to have the 
best possible argument from opposing sides um, kind of argue against each other, and the answer will become self-evident. And that's simplistic, but that's generally how I go about doing things. So that that leads to very collaborative kind of decision making. It go it leads to me wanting different perspectives from different parts of the city on on various issues. And um, the benefit of that is that you, even before doing community engagement, you get buy-in from a lot of different people about the decision that you land on. And even if they don't agree with you, they feel like they've been heard because they had an opportunity to make their argument and make their pitch. So far, that has been, you know, successful for me. Um, I don't know, when, to answer your question directly, I don't know when that happened for me or when I found my style. There's not like an inciting moment, but I do think that it lends itself to my strengths and to my talents to make decisions like that. Now, the the, the drawback of that style is that I, I'm not known for making decisions fast. Um, now, there are instances where you have to make decisions with limited information, but those are absolutely um, the decisions that I hate to make the most. Yeah, and I think healthy debate is is something that is trained versus something that you have innately because people I find sometimes shy away for conflict, but it's not necessarily conflict. It's a discussion to get to the best answers, which is, you know, something that I think is a nuance. Um, and that's how you make the best decisions from your spot, right? Is if you have people who are just saying yes to you all the time, that's a blind spot. Like yeah. That can be, you can make a, a, a not so great decision. If you look back, if and you're saying why it was like, Oh, people just agreed with me all the time. Um, I really like that. And, and I appreciate you, you, you sharing that. Okay, great. Um, I want to transition to the last 15 minutes of our call, um, which is our rapid fire questions. And these are questions that we have asked each of our guests and, and I'm excited to hear your answers. So first question for you is, is there an item or service that you've bought recently that has dramatically improved your life or your family's life? <laughs> um, uh, uh, sorry. Um, let's think here. So we bought, um, my son is almost three and we bought him a toy toilet. Uh, so it is like child sized and I guess it probably works. I mean, it has like a removable bowl. Um, and it, when you flush the toilet, it makes a flush sound. Um, and he loves it, but he hasn't quite figured out the, the timing of it. So he will go to the bathroom in his diaper and then he'll sit on the toilet and then he'll flush it. So we're working on the timing of that, but that has been a useful tool to start potty training him. That's, that's great. Um, my wife and I are actually expecting our first kid, uh, in, in December. So uh, we'll add that for the, the future Amazon list. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I can't, uh, recommend um, the snoo enough. So the snoo is a smart bassinet that, uh, based on, uh, if your child is crying, will increase the white noise and vary the white noise and also rock your child, uh, while your child is crying to rock them back to sleep. Uh, it is 
a game changer. It's it's kind of expensive, but um, I highly recommend it. Yes, I've heard that multiple recommendations. So I said, "Hey, grandparents, can you help us out with this with this?" One? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, if you, my second question is, if you think of a South Asian person in politics, um, or even you know someone uh, of uh, uh, of color. Who would you say comes to mind and why? That someone that you look up to. I know you said Obama, but there is there someone who's Asian that that um that you would identify as someone that you look up to? Yeah, I mean Vice President Harris is is um is that person for me. And similar to Obama, I uh, I really connect with her background, her um need to both balance her South Asian and her black side. Um and and while I don't know her well, um, we have talked briefly about about those shared experiences. And I'm really inspired by her story, how much she has accomplished the added challenge of being a woman in politics. Um, and despite that, overcoming that to be um, our vice president, uh, I, th- I think she's an extraordinary leader. Yeah, she is. And and I think we talk about big moments for our community. That was a massive one mm-hmm. um, to see her in like, you know, the second highest post of the U S right. With her background, just you talk about seeing leaders that look like you like, hello, like yeah. you start, you start to dream even a little bit bigger, um, which I think is really cool. The other person is Sanjay Gupta. He's just making us all look bad. He's a doctor. He's handsome. He's on TV. I know. I'm like, what's his hair products? <laughs> like he, he needs to, yeah, you know, get, get some sponsorship or something. Cause that, yeah. you're right. Yeah. He, he does make us all look bad. Um, is there a movie or book that has had the most impact on you? Yeah. I, you know, my, my favorite book that I've read recently is Walter Isaacson's um, biography of Steve jobs. Uh, it is not a recent book. I think it came out in, I think like 10 years ago now. Um, but it, I don't know that it had a profound impact on me, but, um, you know, the, the kind of central premise of the book comes down to, can you be, um, can you be extraordinary and decent at the same time? Steve jobs was a Renaissance. I mean, a genuinely a Renaissance man had a trans transformed, um, telecommunications transformed in many ways how we interface with with not just computers but also the internet yep. transformed um digital animation through pixar i mean industry after a massive industry after industry he was um he changed the direction of those industries through his innovation and yet by all accounts he seemed like a terrible person a terrible person to work for you know, terrible to his kids, denying paternity of, of one of his daughters for a very long time, kind of terrible to his friends. Um, and, and what's interesting is that, that certainty and confidence that made him an extraordinary person in business kind of contributed to his death because he kind of refused to get, um, traditional treatments and, and relied on, what he thought was an innovative space uh, with respect to medicine. Um, and so that, that I find that um, modeled picture of a person so interesting mm-hmm. because so often we see 
these heroes or these public figures are as either good or bad rather than kind of gray. And we're all a little good and bad. We're all a little gray. And so that, that, that humanity of the book is something that really resonated with me. Yeah. And it shows you how even the greatest people put on pedestal have human parts to them, right? Where they can, everyone is just so complex. And yeah. that's why I think about too, is like whenever you meet someone, right? Everyone has a story. I mean, that's why I started this podcast is like, no matter who you talk to, has something that they've done before, during, and after this. They have generations of people that came before them. They'll have generations of people that come after. That is just amazing to me. And and even someone like that, you know, finding their stories, you're like, oh, these people are just like us. They, they have same issues like us. And, you know, kind of gives you self-perspective, which I think is important. Um, okay. This is one of my favorite questions. And I'm excited to hear your answer. What advice would you give to us upcoming South Asian who wants to get into politics, who wants to get into public service? What advice would you give them and why? Yeah, I, I would say to them, um, your name, your ethnicity, if you have an accent, none of it is disqualifying. Um, you, uh, there is a path to winning for you. Um, despite that. However, that is going to make it harder. And, um, and it's, it's sad, but it's true. You're going to have to work harder. Uh, you're going to have to raise more money. You're going to have to be more perfect on the stump and you're have to, going to have to be more creative. Politics is all about manufacturing empathy or a connection between you and your audience. That, that's, that's what it comes down to. They either see themselves in you they either believe that you understand their challenges or their hopes, um, or they don't. And if they don't, they're not going to vote, vote for you. I mean, setting aside whether they agree with you or not, if they don't believe that you're one of them or that you care about them, the, the rest of it, uh, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, and when you don't look like them or when you have a name that they can't pronounce, that, that, it, those are barriers to connecting with your audience. Going back to my original story about folks telling me to change my name to Adam or to Al, you know, they weren't wrong, Samir. I mean, maybe we don't like to hear that, but they weren't necessarily wrong. It, it would have been easier for me to change my name. That would have been an effective political tactic. Now, that was ne never something I would consider um, because of my values. Um, but when you see AFTAB on a yard sign, most people in Ohio don't immediately think that that's a person, Right. It's, it's, it looks like an acronym or an insurance company. And so those folks weren't wrong. And, and so my advice to that person would, would be that, yes, it is going to be harder. But you can either be a victim of that and be, you know, have a bad attitude about it. Um, or you can run and win and work to change that. And the the positive ending of that story is those same people who told me to change my name to Adam or to Al now tell me, Hey mayor, there's no way I can run and win. My name's Joe Smith. How am I going to stick out from the crowd? Because my name, which was originally perceived as a weakness is now a strength because there's only one, there's only one aftab, right? So I am immediately recognizable no matter where I go. Um, and that's the tipping point. It's yes. hard when you start. It's very hard when you start. It's hard to earn that name capital. 
But once you do, it is a profound strength. Oh man, you may make me want to run through a brick wall for you. Like that, <laughs> that, that, that's amazing. And um, I think that that perspective of you either run to it or run from it, it's like, know that it's going to be harder, know that it's going to be uh, more work, know that you have to be more creative and be better, but it's going to be worth it. And every time you do it, it makes it easier for the people behind you, right? Which I think is also important too, is like, look at the legacy that you're leaving. Like you carved it, made the path just a little bit smoother for someone who, who you know, who's coming behind you. Fantastic. Well, um, I wanted to close and I want to open the floor to you. Do you have any final ask for the audience? Anything you want to leave them with before we close? I don't. I just want to say thanks so much. I mean, lifting up South Asian stories is such a worthy cause. And I'm so, I'm, I'm so honored to be, uh, to have my story be part of that larger story. So thank you for creating this space. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey guys, it's Samir again. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com. Thanks a lot and see you next time.